Welcome to the University of Warwick podcast, where our credible experts introduce you to some incredible insights. We all live busy lives, and much of those lives can be lived through our mobile devices. When we need a break, whether it's through iPlayer or Netflix, Spotify or YouTube, artistic stimulation is just a click away. So, in this digital world, is there any need to leave the comfort of our armchairs and experience a gig, or an opera, or an arts installation? Today, we ask our experts, is it worth putting technology down to appreciate live art? To answer that question, do we need to first clarify just what we mean by art? Dr Chris Bilton from Warwick Centre for Cultural and Media Policy Studies sees art as denoting a certain value that marks it as distinctive. Arts is one of those words where you can get tie yourself in knots trying to define it. Because I work in a marketing and management context, one of the ways I define it to my students is that art, the arts, the difference between the arts and other types of entertainment, culture, media, creative industries, are that the arts places an emphasis on the intrinsic value of the product itself. So that and that's something that's not to be diluted, not to be over-challenged by the way that you deliver it. So there's a certain, um, you could say, sacredness or you could say preciousness about the value of the arts themselves. Although all art may have a definable preciousness, there is still some fluidity in what society deems to be an artistic endeavour. Jonathan Neelands is a professor of creative education at Warwick Business School. You know, we use the term arts very freely now. If you watch... Um, Britain's Got Talent or The Voice, you know, the judges will talk about, you know, fellow artist or, you know, you're an artist. And they're right. They are. I mean, they're technically brilliant people who are really good at what they do. Uh, and because they're in popular music, why should they not be artists? You know, MasterChef, we talk about, oh, it's real artistry in this dish. And they are, you know. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot of traditional distinctions which are, which are falling, falling apart. And, and that's a really good thing. So there's a value in art, and there's lots of different ways in which art can be defined. However, it wasn't that long ago that the ways in which you could truly engage with art were actually fairly limited. If you wanted to get the best experience of art, you had to leave the house or the classroom to have that experience. That's how Michael Scott, Professor of Classics at Warwick and presenter of BBC TV shows like Rome, Invisible City, discovered his passion for history. So I hated it at school. I was, I, I, I was lucky enough to be at a school where, where some Latin was being taught, but I, I didn't agree with me. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. I gave it up pre-GCSE. I never wanted to be a classicist or to have anything to do with the ancient world. Um, what made the difference for me was I stumbled across, really, in my own time, a little bit of ancient Greek and uh, something about that. The weirdness and wonderfulness of the language clicked with me and I kind of kept it up as a hobby. I was always thinking I was going to be a lawyer so it didn't really matter what subjects I did at, at A level because you know they don't want you to have really have done law. Um, so I kept it up as a, as a kind of hobby and then when I was 17 I had my first trip to Greece and I had my 17th birthday uh, at the ancient site of Olympia. Um, and there, you know, that really was a magic moment for me because just being in those sites surrounded by the surviving remains of temples and shrines and statues and dedications and these extraordinary monuments and achievements of a culture that had existed so long ago absolutely just uh, caught my imagination and uh, I, I, I took a year out between school and university to, to re-tackle Latin and relearn Latin and I've never looked back since. In more recent times, society's access to artistic content has changed dramatically, as Chris explains. 
The big difference, obviously, is that people are now carrying with them technologies that allow them to listen to and watch content on their own. So the days when we all sat around the living room watching TV together, if we now talk to students and my own kids, they watch on a laptop or even on a, um, a mobile, and they don't watch it with their, with their family, they watch it on their own. So one, one difference is that it's become much more fragmented and much more individualized. Uh, the other thing is that we have a vast amount of choice, we have access to everything, we, have, we actually suffer from what Barry Schwartz calls overchoice, where we have too much choice, and that's actually not good for consumers. They get confused when they have too much choice. So that creates all kinds of opportunities for intermediaries to come in and manage and filter that process. The big change was really started in the music industry in 1999 with Napster and file sharing and the whole digitization of content across all cultural and creative industries. And that, that led towards um, a very different mode of consumption for everybody. And that's, that's the reality we're still coping with. But one of the things it did as well is it creates conversely a sort of a desire to counteract the isolation as well. So people, even though they, they consume alone, they want to share together. And so, so we have social media um, providing that missing middle that's perhaps taken away from what was there before. We also have big tech companies that have taken up that space between the producer and the consumer because the initial effect in 1999 was to knock out the, the middle person, knock out the, the publisher, knock out the broadcaster. You don't need them anymore. You can get the content direct from the artist. The artist can put something up on YouTube, create a website, self-publish a book, whatever it is, and you as a listener or a viewer or reader, you can just connect direct with that, with that artist. So perhaps the digital revolution has broken down the elitism that art is often associated with. And I think the problem is that there's a history of appropriation of the word art by um, certain groups in society at, at, the, at the expense of others. So being cultured was something that a gentleman had to be you know you, you needed to know your french you need to know your french menus which french wines you need to know which operas you need to be able to recognize classical music when you have you know that's that's what you need in order to be a cultured gentleman and to move in certain circles and certainly for a time um, 19th century uh, art was very much part of the the leisure time which only the the middle class and the ruling class had any any access to no one else had any time for it so it was a art was used a way of distinguishing social class chris agrees experiencing art digitally is a very liberating thing that it removes some of those barriers that you get around institutions around art forms so for many people going to the theatre, going to the opera, going to the ballet, going to an art gallery is fraught with all kinds of social anxiety around, around class, around culture and so on. Um, a digital platform, in theory at least, overcomes some of those limitations because it means that anybody can access that information anonymously without seeing whether you're clapping at the right time in the music or, or laughing at the right jokes. And that's, that's potentially quite, uh, quite democratising, quite liberating. Kate Sayer is Head of Creative Learning at Warwick Arts Centre and often works with young people in Leamington Spa. 
She agrees that engagement with the arts in a live context crosses social boundaries and broadens understanding about the wider world. I think having an arts experience as part of your whole life is... um... Obviously, I think that's really important. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, I think the arts give you access into different worlds very quickly, um, which means that um, no matter where you are in the world and who you are, you can access different lifestyles, different cultures, um, and explore being part of them through drama or through reading or any of those things. And maybe this is an area where accessing art through technology alone has its limitations. By relying solely on digital devices and putting our trust into the big tech companies hosting artistic content, is society in danger of losing that appreciation of different cultures and lifestyles? So one of the one of the consequences of that of that um, proliferation of, of information is that you're you don't select the information yourself. Like this was the sort of the ideal is that you you are this activist consumer who finds, who finds things out from the vast range of information out there. Instead, what happens is there is an algorithm that does that filtering for you. And you know, we're all familiar with the, the sort of bubble effect of social media, where you, you share the same uh, views with other people who agree with you. And, and so it becomes mutually reinforcing, so you assume that everybody thinks this, and you get information that fits with your view of the world. Something that then comes from outside that that challenges you, and you're 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 taken up short, and you think, well, how do I how do I connect that? That's not my reality. Um, so there's that there's that problem of of um, disconnection, and then there's also the problem of of um, how do you actually introduce diversity um, into a system which is simply reproducing itself and and playing back the same information in a kind of rather narcissistic, self-reflecting way to itself all the time, um, how do you challenge people's views? How do you introduce them to different points of view? And we, you know, we see this around voting patterns around Brexit and the debates on social media. I was tr- going to try not to mention Brexit, but it slipped out. But um, you know, that, that kind of uh, that, that, um, reinforcement of diametrically opposed views with no real public sphere in which those different views can come together becomes a huge problem for us in our in the world that we live in today politically socially culturally so should the fact that a handful of these giant technology companies are controlling our access to the arts be a cause for alarm do we care enough to switch off we should definitely be concerned about the power of of these big intermediary companies and i think a lot of us are but we're also naturally speaking for myself lazy so we don't sign off facebook Google. We don't do the digital detox, but the the reality is that we will always kind of gravitate towards what's easy and what's convenient, and that's the genius of what the technology does because it makes things easy, and it makes things convenient. So the theory is that we should all be activists and find you know and and we should all sign up to other alternative. Um, social media and accounts and search engines that don't steal our data and don't sell it to third parties. But, you know, there's that fear of missing out FOMO thing where we think, oh, but if we, we, we won't know about that party on Facebook if we're not on Facebook, so we better just keep the Facebook account as well. Um, I think it's unrealistic to think that we're going to sign off entirely from, from the, the big media, big um, digital media giants, but we might cultivate some alternatives as well. We might sort of have some other 
some other sources of information and content and music and art and film and television that aren't that aren't just those those big those big um, easy convenient things. It's like it's like a a balanced healthy diet, isn't it? You know, we all we all like eating crisps and popcorn and fizzy drinks, but you couldn't live off that forever. Despite the concerns about how our digital consumption of arts could lead to a narrowing of some individuals' view of the world, there are positive examples of how technology and live art can be brought together to improve both accessibility and cultural awareness. Professor Neelands was a leading light in Coventry's successful bid for the City of Culture. He believes that the mix of digital and high-profile events can help make the arts more accessible to everyone. You know, if, if you live in London, your access to the arts, you know, whatever your background whatever your interest, you know, it's there on your doorstep, three, you know, 24-7. The regions, it's more difficult to access. But the positive of the digital revolution is that it is making art, which was once the preserve of the capital city, available to everybody, you know, even into small villages in, in, um, in Cornwall, National Theatre Live, RSC Live, the Royal Opera House Live, you know, the streaming has been a fantastic revolution a fantastic way of making you know what is only enjoyed in, in London accessible to everybody and I think it's also made arts funders think more seriously about the needs of the region you know in 2021 the largest arts festival in the world will be in Coventry what about January 2022 so for for for, for a lot of us it's actually not about 2021 2021 is like a Trojan horse, if you like, for a number of other objectives, which is about the role that culture can play in lifelong learning, in health and well-being, economic regeneration, what it can do around social cohesion, what, how we can celebrate the youthful diversity of the city. You know, it's all of that, which is actually the exciting piece. Um, it's a working class town. It has way below average levels of participation in publicly invested arts but it's a town that likes to get its coats on and get out so a lot of 2021 there'll be big co-creation spectacle you know big spectaculars that will be the people uh, taking part you know being the artists themselves and making things happen so live art and technology can be combined for the good of society but for the time poor consumer of today who isn't necessarily concerned about the societal benefits of live art what incentive do they have to turn off netflix and leave the sofa chris thinks there's a lot to be gained from the shared human experience we are social creatures and we do want to experience art culture with other people it's why we people join book groups it's why there are fan sites for Harry Potter. People want to share and talk about the information that they and the, and the content and the ideas that they find interesting. And of course the best way to do that is to go to a live event where you're with other people. And the the growth of the live music industry alongside the growth of um, digital downloads and individual personalised listening they, they parallel each other, they support each other, because what that does is it creates a demand for you wanting to listen to music with other people who like the same music as you. And you can do that by clicking on likes and sharing playlists, but you can also do it if you're going to a live event. So, so the live event opens up a different, type of, a different type of sharing. The other thing the live event does is it, it communicates a kind of visceral excitement and unpredictability which you don't get 
if you're listening to something that's produced, that's technologized, that's digitized, that's filtered, that's coming to you through your, through your playlist or through your headphones. And that's something, again, that people seem to want. They want that kind of rough magic of the live event rather than the predictability of, a, um, of something that's, um, you know, that's, that's prepared and targeted at you as an individual. I remember when my son went to see a horror film in the cinema for the first time. He'd watched lots of them on his phone. And he was really surprised by the ways in which suddenly everybody kind of got scared at the same time or everybody went <gasps> at the same time and gasped and got shocked. And that was a, a, it was a completely different way of, of watching a horror film. Jonathan takes a similar view. Why, why bother going to Glastonbury? Why bother going to any of those festivals when you can get it all live streamed on Radio 1? Well, people do. And I, and I think that the arts are beginning to understand that and make something of it. I don't get wildly excited about going into a gallery and, and seeing paintings because it's not particularly my thing. And I can get, you know, I can access tape and everything else online. But I know people for whom standing in front of it, you know, the very standing in front of it and the sense of texture and other people and their conversations gives them something which they wouldn't otherwise have had if it was flat on the screen, so I get that. But in the performing arts in particular, which is what my interest, it is, it is, it is very like football. It is a, a sense of shared communal experience. You know, it's the buzz of the audience, it's gathering in a public place. You know, it's often accompanied by other social things to do with, you know, eating beforehand or drinking afterwards or whatever. Uh, often you go with family and friends. Even if you go on your own, you feel as though you're part of a, of a shared experience. Going, going to live music is, is a very different experience from listening to, to music on a, on a player, you know, an iPlayer or um, an iPod. And I think that, that that kind of sweaty, kind of drunken, noisy, kind of sticky experience of live music is something that's very hard to capture. And what you sometimes get now is at the end of the gig, you have somebody, I've seen this a few times, there'll be somebody trying to sell you a recording of the concert you've just been at. And that's a very interesting way of trying to take, turn the live experience back into a commodity again. So you walk away and you might even hear the bit where you shouted, yelped something at the back of the room and be able to sort of play that back to your friends. And that, that of course, plays into all of our digital narcissism of wanting to say, look, I'm in it, I'm here as well. So it seems that our experts agree that digital technology isn't a barrier to the arts and in many circumstances it's actually an enabler. But however people engage, taking part in the arts is a vital part of our well-being as individuals and as a society. And maybe, as arts consumers, we need to tread carefully. Is access to art still an individual's own choice or has technology taken that choice away? How happy are we that four or five super companies view us as a walking cluster of preferences? That was Is It Worth Putting Technology Down to Appreciate Live Art, a University of Warwick podcast. To find out more about this topic, our experts or future episodes in our podcast series, visit the University of Warwick website and search for podcasts. You can share your views with us on Twitter using the hashtag CredibleIncredible. And keep up to date with the rest of the University of Warwick podcast series by subscribing to iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Join us next time when we'll have some more incredible insights on the agenda from our credible experts. Thank you.